Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Financial Confessions. And today, as you might have guessed by the title slash potentially thumbnail, if you are watching this on YouTube, we are going to be talking all about money and relationships. Now, we've been doing some events around the country all on the subject of money and relationships, and we will be featuring more episodes this season that dive a little bit deeper into some of those topics. But today I wanted to speak with someone who really approaches this from a therapeutic perspective, who's really all about reframing how we think about communicating about money. Because yes, money is a huge impacting factor on relationships, as most of us know. It's one of the primary causes of divorce and marriage and even for couples that don't end in divorce can cause humongous problems throughout the course of a relationship. But it is also a big elephant in the room in our friendships, in our family relationships, in basically every single dynamic we have. And even with our relationship with ourself, money can be a huge issue. We bring baggage and shame and anxiety and a sense of insufficiency. As we talked about in our episode last week with Farnoosh Tarabi, who was raised by immigrant parents who fled the Iranian revolution, even the received money narratives and traumas and pressures of the generations before us can hugely impact us, even if we grew up personally in a totally different way. Ultimately, my guest today talks a lot in her actual practical work, but also in the content that she creates about sort of reframing our entire thinking around money and learning how to communicate more effectively so that money becomes something for which we can work together and not something that's constantly tearing us apart. And again, that includes in our relationship with ourselves. We also have a ton of questions from you guys. We asked for your questions for my guest today and you wrote in an overwhelming number, so we probably won't be able to get to all of them, but we will get to many of them. We'll also talk a little bit about some of the relationship miscommunications around money that have been on everyone's mind in the pop culture zeitgeist uh, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, I'd love for you to meet my guest, financial therapist, Wendy Wright. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. I am a little bit of fangirling over you, Chelsea. I think I love what you're doing. And I'm excited to talk about this because when I'm working with couples um, or individuals one-on-one and we start to apply some of these uh, financial therapy approach, I guess we'd say, um, their whole body shifts. Like it is really impactful to begin to make some of these shifts. Well, so let's start there. So you have a clinical practice where you are a therapist to both individuals and couples with uh, a financial focus. Can you talk a little bit about what typically will bring individuals to you and what will bring couples to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, because it's kind of the same, but different. Um, So yes, I have a a practice where I'm, I'm both a licensed marriage and family therapist, so I understand um, not just marriages and families, but systems, because that's a lot of what we're talking about there is systems. So then um, with the focus on financial therapy, we are talking about money. And it's very different than, um, I'm also a trained money coach. So I can bring in coaching. I have a business background. I've been a mortgage banker and different things like that. And I can remember sitting with people as a mortgage banker and you basically, if you've ever applied for a mortgage, you know, you got to spill your guts on paper. And, um, I remember thinking then these people could use some help with this. And so fast forward, you know, a couple of decades later and financial therapies become a thing. So I love doing it when people call and reach out for an appointment, they're often saying things like, um, money is my biggest stressor, or we fight about money all the time. 
or um, I think about money all the time. I can't stop thinking about it. I, I don't know how to change my money behavior. And, um, and also kind of a belief that they are, and I always use air quotes with this quote unquote bad with money, because that's a belief and not a truth. And so when they reach out, um, they, first of all, are courageous because they really don't know what the heck they're getting into with financial therapy. It's still so new. So they're like, I think this would be helpful. And they usually like heard me on a podcast or read an article or something. Um, but so they start out with some courage. Um, but they want change and they just haven't been able to get any traction and change. They want to be able to do things differently. Um, so that's kind of what draws them to me. Now, when people come into your office, so let's say they've expressed kind of all of these things, um, you know, and they're, as you mentioned, they, they can't stop thinking about it. They're obsessing about it. They're stuck in these very destructive patterns with money. Um, can you talk a little bit about being both a therapist and a money coach, where you see the difference between what is a truly financial problem and what is essentially a psychological or emotional problem? Mm -hmm. Great question. Yes. Um, I'm in a lean toward and research supports this too. I think you've probably seen some of it, you know, like 70, 80%, depending on what research you look at of our financial decisions are emotionally based. So mm -hmm. In my experience, it is very, I'd say really like maybe 20 to 20 to 30%. It's actual lack of knowledge of how to do something with money. And the rest of it is mindset, emotion, shame, um, beliefs that aren't truths, um, kind of this stuff. So, and it's also typically something they've never talked about. I, I hear that often after I ask them some questions They'll, they'll just, you know, and then I'll say, how was it like to talk about that? And they're like, I've never said these words out loud before. So just being able to create this space where people can talk about it in a way where they're not judged, because that's the big thing. Um, I'll, I'll kind of pepper in, I've created 10 principles of financial therapy. So it sort of frames out the work for people because they, again, they're like, I don't know what this is, but the first one is abundant, compassionate curiosity and zero judgment. And that in and of itself is such a game changer. If that's all anybody ever does is drop the judgment, they can really begin to do the math. They can begin to take um, tips and apply them. To focus on the couples for a second, um, as opposed to the individuals, because I do, I want to talk about our relationship with ourselves in a bit, but as it pertains to the couple, you know, a lot of times when we hear and, and read about some of the um, bigger patterns that couples get into with regards to money becoming a problem, a lot of the times it comes from people who have two very different approaches to money or two very different relationships to money. Commonly things like one person is more of a saver versus a spender. One person uh, comes from a background, you know, where maybe they were, they grew up more affluent and the other person grew up, you know, with not a lot. And there's, there's just really sort of two different, um, both approaches to money and um, sort of emotional states around money. Um, when it comes to couples who are having a hard time financially, how much of the work actually gets done between the two people and how much of it is about each individual sort of sorting out their respective relationship to money? Chelsea, your insight is so spot on um, because a hundred percent. Yes. I, I mean, I'm not just trying to be like super nice, but um, 
it, this is so key. In fact, like I have a money mindset shift course that takes people through a lot of journaling prompts and this kind of thing. And, um, and I actually don't recommend couples do it together because of that very thing. What I find is the couples, now couples can come together in session, but parallel to that, I guess, parallel to that. Yeah. Um, they need to do their own work. Um, but what happens in a session and I tell them this, um, and this is just unique to, um, to what I do, um, is that these are not typical couples therapy sessions because sometimes one of them will do all the talking, maybe telling their story, their money memories, and the other one will do active listening. And that's a game changer too, to do active listening, not interruptive listening, which if you know, that's probably a whole nother podcast, but for, to be able to sit and hear, and it's really powerful because the other one will say, gosh, I never knew that about you. I never, uh, I, I never heard that story because we go back to some of the early money memories and look at where did the mindset start to get formed? So with a, uh, so yes, it's a kind of a both and couples do a lot better. They do a lot better when they're willing to do their own work parallel to each other is great. Um, or, and, and then bring it into session and we talk about it. And then we look at um, what are the dynamics going on? Because I'll often say money has a past, present and future all the time. So you go and you have a money experience and you remember how it was when you were growing up, you know how you wish it was. And it's, this is how it is today. And that all happens at once. And then you have feelings and you don't. So, you know, slowing that process down and getting awareness is really pivotal. So, okay, so taking it back to the communication aspect of it, um, are there common threads you see in people's communication that you're like, oh, this is holding you back? Like, this is making the problem a lot worse, just in the way, I mean, obviously not listening actively is a big one, but even in the way we speak to each other in the way that we, um, you know, frame things. Are there patterns that you see in terms of ways that people's communications around money is sort of sabotaging themselves? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like think if I may, um, try this on Chelsea. Like if I, if, if I said to you, God, all you think about is money, mm -hmm. how does that, how does that feel in your body? Like, how do you react to that kind of a statement? Funny you should say that because I used to date um, what I would describe as an emotionally abusive person for a few months. And one of the things he did, he came from a much more financial privilege than I did, especially at the time. And one thing he did when I would get very stressed out with purchases we were making when we were out together or, you know, what was being put on a bill at a restaurant or what have you, um, he once looked at me and he was like, Ugh you are, it's always about money with you. It's always about money. And I remember at the time I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. And now I wish I could go back and punch him in the face as he deserved. Um, or I guess I, throw a drink in his face, at least I don't necessarily endorse violence, but suffice to say to your exact point, hearing something like that makes someone, I think, immediately both defensive and ashamed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it doesn't help really solve the issue either. So um, another common one, you know, would be all we ever fight about is money and how that feels to um, a couple. But one of the principles that I have is to take the money word out of the sentence. So if someone says, I am so stressed by my student loans, let's take the student loan word out of the sentence. What are you stressed about? If a couple says, all we fight about is money or all she wants to hear about is money, 
um, I'll have them take the money word out and say, what, you know, what's, what's going on here. And honestly, sometimes it takes them literally five to 10 minutes to come up with the words, but when they do, it's a game changer because they're like, I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed, or I feel disrespected. I feel like we're not on the same page. Like then we're having a very different conversation, right? A hundred percent. Well, and also, I mean, to that point, like some, a practice that I've really, that I learned in therapy personally and have been, you know, has been really transformational with anxiety for me is really trying to think very actively and literally when you're experiencing anxiety, experiencing stress, separating out the things that you are anxious or stressed about that are under your control and the things that are not, um, and really sort of doing everything in your power to um, focus only on the things that you can actually have an impact on and then, you know, actually do things to have an impact on them. But I think part of what can be so overwhelming with money in particular as a stressor is because while there are things we can do and we should be doing them, there are going to inevitably be a lot of elements of money that are somewhat out of our control um, and that are going to be, or at least are going to take a lot longer than something we can solve in the minute. Um, and, you know, having like, for example, with student loans, you know, I'm lucky in that I don't have them because I don't have a degree, but, um, for people that do have them, there is part of that anxiety that is, you know, for example, perhaps they're not managing their budget super well. They could be, you know, allocating savings better. There are things that they could be doing under their control and that's worth focusing on. But for a lot of them, when it comes to things like that, half of what they're upset about, like you just said, is you know the shame, the remorse, all of these things, which are things that are at this point totally out of their control because it's already done. Um, and I do think that that mixing, conflating those two things constantly makes everything so much worse and makes you so much less able to react to it in a healthy way. Yeah, it's very paralyzing. When we like a... Uh, um when we get a, sh a load of shame, we're, we tend to go like fight, flight, or freeze, right? We kind of like, we get paralyzed from it. So if something in your money life is where you feel a lot of shame around it, um, because for instance, with student loans, I think what happens for people is it's not the student loans that are stressing them. It is the unacknowledged grief that they have it, or the anger at someone who advised them to get it, or the shame that they have that they think, oh, I'm going to owe this for 20 more years. But when we begin to look at it and we build a plan where payoff is incorporated, but life is also incorporated. And that's where the coaching part comes in, where we, we get a plan where you can live a life and know that debt's getting paid off. It's a huge game changer because then it's not like the top of mind, first thought, wake up in the morning and think, when am I going to get them paid off? Because you're, you're absolutely right. We want to look at what can they do? What can be set in motion? And then look at a long range plan. I think the other thing too is, is um, there's a, almost a safety sometimes in saying money is the problem or like student loans or earnings or savings or whatever, because that helps you almost avoid it. You're like, oh, money, money's a big stressor. Then you can't do anything. It's too big. You can't find action steps. You just stay in that sort of, this is happening to me status. Or in a couple, you don't have to talk about it because you just shut them up, you know, with saying, oh, you think it's about money. Well, as I mentioned earlier, especially as it comes to things like shame, you know, anxiety, a lot of that for a lot of people comes from, how they were raised with money, their childhood or decisions they made early on. 
as I mentioned in the intro, our, our guest last week, um, you know, talks a lot and, and wrote a book a, a lot about her experience growing up, not just a child of immigrants, but child of immigrants who, you know, fled a war and, you know, instilled uh, a lot of narratives around money, safety, success, all of these things that, you know, in her, you know, as a mother in her 40s and as a, a very fully fledged adult, she's, you know, still unpacking and still kind of relearning. Um, and I think all of us to some extent have some of that with money, some more so than others. But for a lot of us, I think we don't really take seriously the idea of reframing our emotions and our baggage around money until it comes to a head or until it really becomes a problem. Um, so what are some sort of practices that you would recommend for people to think critically and conscientiously about their narratives around money and their relationships around it that might be unhealthy or unproductive before it becomes a huge mental health issue? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a lot there. Okay. So once, once we have more awareness of where we developed a belief, then we can decide like one of the phrases that I use a lot is who owns your money? Because once let's say you have a family and the message was don't get in debt, but what you heard was you're bad if you get in debt, but you might still agree with, I don't want to carry debt. But if it's attached to the family's message of you're bad, if you have debt, you know, you see the anxiety thread there. So coming into what do you want your money to look like? What do you want your money life to look like? Um, and how does that show your ownership? Then you get to own your stories because then you can say, oh, yeah, I actually feel better when I don't have debt. I feel better when I'm doing this. So one of the tools that I'll have people use for that is to um, name the story they want their money to tell. And, and write it out or share it as a couple. But writing out the story you want your money to tell helps you step into ownership of it. And you can do this before you hit a crisis. Because um, a lot of, you know, because people will come to me um, like when they're young adults and they just like maybe got their first um, job with twice as much pay. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this. So they, you know, they're like trying, they want to start out with different um, patterns. I guess we'd say. So starting out looking at that, because there's a lot of, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think of it as if um, someone just sort of pulled the rug out from under uh, people and um, young couples, families, because they don't have a strong, um, oh, they did it this way. I work with a lot of couples that don't want to do um, a stay-at-home parent, don't want to do like a, you know, sort of maybe like a traditional fifties, I guess we'd say sort of, but then they don't know what else to do. And that's where we really start saying, what story do you want your money to tell? And they can come into the, oh, okay, now we're getting, we're getting a little of values work and things like that, but how do you want it to put feet to your money to get that? So starting that early can be really helpful because then you think about, okay, I want it to show this and this and this of my life. And when it comes to, you know, your your parents um, or, you know, the people that raised you who, you know, I think for a lot of people, and it can be about money, it can be about love, it can be about, you know, 
basically politics. It could be about basically any topic, but I think they're often for a lot of adults comes kind of a moment of disillusionment where you begin to understand my parents didn't know everything. Some of the lessons that they taught me um, may not have been the most productive or the most accurate. Um, Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, when it comes to you know, the financial aspect of it, having some of the wrong messages around money can be pretty damaging. Like, for example, a lot of us who were raised by baby boomers, there was a huge, huge focus put on home ownership. Um, you know, first of all, in a home market that is not nearly as accessible as it was um, economically when they were buying homes, but also, you know, home buying, as you know, as a financial coach, can be a wonderful thing, but it's also not a necessity financially. Um, and can be a mistake for people to buy a house at the wrong time or for the wrong amount or in the wrong area. Um, And as we saw with the 2008 crash, that, you know, huge pressure to make certain financial decisions when you're not ready to make them can be really catastrophic. But again, for a lot of people, milestones like that have huge emotional um, importance placed on them. So, you know, when it comes to sort of unlearning the maybe biased or unproductive money messages that we may have received coming, you know, growing up and sort of thinking about money from a more neutral place, what are your best methods for doing that in a way that, you know, isn't disrespectful to your parents necessarily, but is also like, as an adult, it's my responsibility to navigate these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you both want to know, like, how to, how do you talk to yourself about it? And then perhaps how do you talk to your parents? Exactly, about it? exactly. Two totally different conversations too, <laughs> you know, because um, you have to see like, you know, you have to know your audience when it comes to your parents and how you're going to have that conversation. But I think for you, um, for individuals, owning that story can be really powerful and looking at, um, okay, if I don't want to own a home right now, then um, what else can I do? Because there are other ways to invest money that will give you growth similar to a home. But what happened, uh, what happens a lot, with, even when I was in mortgage banking and I was a realtor and I'm um, looking in that area is um, almost like, how much can I expand this and squeeze in under the finish line here? But what's not talked about, and I do this in a spreadsheet, I do this with couples when I'm working, individuals too, sorry. Um, I do this with clients, um, a spreadsheet of 10 years of expenses of owning a home so that they're prepared for, oh, what that means is you take like the total total and you divide it. That means $300 a month needs to go into a home maintenance account. And that's mind blowing for them because that, that conversation doesn't happen a lot organically um, in my experience. And so looking at all the cost of home ownership and because then when someone owns a home and they say, well, I bought it for a hundred and now I'm selling it for two, that does not mean they cleared a hundred thousand because you got to look at, but you put in new flooring and new HVAC and all this kind of stuff. So you got to really look at the numbers. So looking at your own numbers is really empowering. And I find that that, that is actually one of the biggest hurdles that I will, that I bump into is people who um, do, who feel uncomfortable or not sure how to look at their numbers without it just being a meltdown. So the more comfortable you get with that and you look at, okay, well, what is my actual financial goal? Um, Because maybe, um, maybe you live, you know, I mean, I, I, I live in the Denver area, so I know that there are couples that do this where they, they rent to live where they want in Denver, but they own rental property in 
Whatchadoodle Town, you know? So it's like, you look at your overall map and look at how do you want to meet these goals or investments? You know, you just put it in, it can grow in investments also. And investments don't require you to replace the floors or the HVAC at some point. Very true. Also, right now we're getting 5% interest in high yield savings accounts. So uh, money, right, right. They're, they're giving away money right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you're stepping into people's relationship with savings. Like it is, it's really challenging sometimes to move someone into opening a high yield savings account when we're, when I'm working with them one-on-one -on -one because they don't believe they can save. So if you don't believe you can save, you don't even put 10,000, your $10,000 in that account because you don't think you really are a saver. Like there's a lot of the mindset that really has to be addressed. Which is a good point. I mean, well, so as I was mentioning to you before we started filming, I'm, I, I love to think about you know, whether it's with your romantic partner or in friendships or even sometimes in work environments or what have you, the difference between, you know, inconsistencies, let's say, and fundamental incompatibilities. You know, we're different on these issues. We have, um, you know, there are things that aren't perfectly lined up versus this is, you know, not going to work out. And I had mentioned, we talked about it on a, on a recent episode of the uh, podcast. There was a really interesting story arc that played out on this season of the really popular uh, Netflix show Love is Blind, where um, it was sort of an almost mirror image of a financial problem that a couple had on the first season. In both cases, these are financial issues. I'm going to spoil. So if you want to finish this season and haven't seen it, uh, skip ahead. But um, basically, uh, in this season, the couple ended up not being getting married because of this financial incompatibility, um, where essentially the uh, the man of the partnership uh, came from vastly less money, himself did not earn very much, was in a um, commission-based job, so didn't have, I think was a 1099 contractor without a base salary, had a little credit card debt and a pretty low credit score from the credit card debt. And again, the woman in this scenario came from, uh, it seems like a, a fair bit of wealth, um, you know, already owned property, had multiple cars, uh, luxury cars, you know, had a pretty nice seeming job at her father's company. Um, and they ended up splitting up and, and, you know, the woman was pretty clear that it was because of the financial issues and, and more so the fact that they weren't disclosed early on in the relationship and that they kind of had to be pulled out of him a little bit which I think there is some real validity to it. But in the first season, there was a couple where um, the man earned quite a bit more, already owned property. Um, the woman in the relationship, she had dropped out of school, so a accrued student debt without a degree, had a huge amount of consumer debt, credit cards on you know shopping, things like that. Uh, did not own a home, was was in a pretty tough financial situation. And they ended up getting married regardless. And I believe he ended up selling his home to help pay off her debts and all these things. And in kind of looking at the way they've been talked about respectively in pop culture, there's been, first of all, a huge amount of debate as to whether or not it was fair to break it off with, um, you know, uh, the man in this most recent season because of those financial problems he was bringing to the table. Um, but seeing the way it was kind of contrasted against the first season where it was kind of perceived as being very chivalrous on the man's part to take on this woman's problems. Um, and just the, 
the stark difference in perception, it's hard not to think that that is heavily influenced by gender roles and by the narratives that we have about whose responsibility it is to come into the relationship with more uh, with more money and more um, stability financially. So my question for you about this is, A, you know, when it comes to someone who's coming into a relationship with more financial baggage, where do you personally recommend people draw the line on, you know, this is something we can work out together versus this may be a deal breaker for our relationship? And then kind of beyond that, how do we remove the, in my opinion, sometimes a little toxic, a little unfair narratives that we might have about things like gender um, and, you know, respective responsibility from, you know, what is ultimately should be the right decision for us? Mm-hmm. This is such a good example because I think you've got some really strong caricatures of some typical relationship dynamics that might happen for people. Um, but you've also touched on, so let's talk about the fir- the one in this season that's not married yet um, and look at, um, you named it. It was more of his um, delivery of the information. So it felt like there was some hiding going on. Um, and, um, that probably has a bigger impact, but then also some, we want to look at what are the assumptions that one person is making about the other person, if they have debt or if they have houses and cars. So we want to look at, there's probably some assumptions that are going on. There's probably some assumptions in the audience. Oh, well, she's rich. She doesn't understand anything about my life. Cause I'm living paycheck to paycheck or whatever. Like, you know, there's assumptions that are there. So for a couple, If you're building a partnership, you want to really communicate those. And sometimes with money, a lot is, um, I guess I'd say sort of meta communicated through, through money because couples struggle, individuals struggle to really communicate directly about money. So I can see why, um, maybe he felt if he felt some shame about his debt or his financial situation, he was probably slow on the delivery of that information. Um, what you want to look for in a relationship, and this is, you know, I'm going to say this carefully so that nobody take, don't take anything I say as a broad stroke of answer to everything. But one of the things you really want to look for in money relationship is not the past money management, but is there flexibility? Is there a willingness to learn? Is there um, an ability to forgive themselves? Like for a big part of really moving forward in money is forgiving yourself and letting go and um, uh, taking the next step. But sometimes we're so stuck on what's happened in the past. And also looking at what are, when a couple is coming together, you want to look at what do we want our life to look like with money? What are our values? What are our goals or however you want to, what's our mission statement, whatever phrase fits for a couple coming into that. And let's say, for instance, it is that we want to build assets and reduce debt. I mean, that's pretty common, but how do we want that to look? And then is there an ability to communicate? So when there, if there's not an ability to communicate, if it feels like they're stonewalling, they just can't get past it, they're not flexible, they are uh, maybe too ashamed to talk about it, then maybe you get some help with communicating. Um, but again, it's not the money that's the issue. It's more of the communication about the money that they're bumping into. And in terms of the gender role aspect, I mean, I imagine that in the hetero couples that you see, that's got to factor into a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I, you know, I see couples of, um, 
a variety of makeups, whether it be same sex, different ages, different, and then um, maybe more of a heteronormative couple. Um, and it is a pretty common theme for them that they, they're all map, making a new map. So most, uh, a lot of my couples don't want to, don't want to be leaning into old gender roles and yet they do. So they see themselves do it and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that, but they don't know what else to do. So we'll talk about that. We build a map. We look at what this is. Um, but I think what, um, you know, you've got this good example of two couples. I think the way you described it, where it's a flip of financial situations and genders. Um, one of the things about the one where you said he came in and paid off debt, um, because that does happen, um, it can feel like the way to help, but it's often not. Mm -hmm. So giving a pause to what is the, what is the actual goal here of the outcome um, is really important because it can, it can vary couple to couple, but sometimes you're, you're bumping into more of a parent child than gender roles. So if there's a parent child dynamic with money, then that, that, that's something we really want to elevate, unpack and see if you can shift out of that. And sometimes with money, it comes in that way. Like I'll fix this and then you better learn from it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't learn from it, something's wrong with, you know, then, and, um, you, you can't parent a partner. It doesn't work. Well, it doesn't, but it does happen every day, unfortunately. <laughs> all the time, all the time, yes. Um, okay, I am going to pull up some of the questions. As I mentioned, we got quite a few. Okay, my husband is very avoidant with money and I am anxious with it. Tips for handling our money discussions. Oh, good, okay, yes. Well, I would say a couple different tips that I that I like to recommend. Um, so y'all probably heard of money dates. That's something that's probably a pretty common phrase for your audience, right, Chelsea? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the first things before you try a money date is you have to have three dates where you don't talk about money before you have a money date. That's my first recommendation because what helps money conversations is affection and affection. It's not the only thing, but that's one of the things that really helps. And so having fun together, um, having connection can really help the money conversation. Um, but the next thing that I find to be a, a common, um, really helpful tool is to remember, you don't have to do it all in one conversation. And that's a big one because usually because there's so much stress and anxiety or avoidance, it's like, let's hurry up and get it over with and talk about money for three hours and build this pretty color-coded budget. And then it's all fixed. And that is not the truth. Money is never, money is never done. That's a big, big, important thing for people to recognize. So it's, it's never done. It's never perfect. And so every conversation you have with a partner is one of like a million and 12, right? So when they can see that and take the pressure off and not feel like it has to all come into this one conversation, then I encourage them to bring one goal per partner, especially if they've never done this. If this is a big shift, bring one goal per partner. And that goal can be that I showed up to start with so that they feel some success and limit it to 10 minutes with a timer on and then stop. So you, so they can build some success and realize, okay, we can do this, whether they're avoidant or anxious. And, and, you know, I haven't met a couple yet. That's the same. So everybody's, you know, at a different place with a different background and a different income, but those, um, we could talk about that more, but those are some of the tips that I give people to start out with. 
I love that. I also feel like from, you know, coming as someone who used to be extremely avoidant with money, um, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of similar to anything else you're avoidant with. Like you could also be very avoidant to going to the dentist, very avoidant to, you know, uh, really any, or going to the gym, like any unpleasant experience. And you're very right that often so much of the battle is just actually getting into the room and and opening up the conversation or starting it. And once you're actually already in there and have gotten over that initial sort of block, then you actually find that it's usually quite a bit easier than you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know because then they're usually like, oh, I'm relieved that we talked about this or that. Um, but having a clear, I mean, I talk about smart goals, you know, the whole specific measurable blah, 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 attainable, you know, um, your audience would be familiar with that, right? Um, breaking it down, really breaking it down so that they feel like they got something done because that's a big problem with money is it just feels like you never get it all done. I agree. I also think, you know, for, for me, at least as, as someone who used to be very avoidant, like setting in tons of little small milestones, small reminders, things that really keep it feeling, um, you know, like you have a lot of forward momentum going and that it's broken up into very small manageable pieces. Um, Like you don't have to, like, let's say you don't have to transfer money into the the new savings account today. You just have to open it up or, you know, you just have to pick a bank or making it smaller and smaller and smaller, I think is, is very helpful to me anyway. Yes, totally. Whatever, if you find yourself making a task that you think you're gonna do for my, like opening that savings account, um, if it's kind of gone more than two weeks, you got to break it down. That's, that is your sign that that was too big of a task. So maybe the next task is open the bank tab and that's it. You know, like just go to whatever.com and open the tab. Okay. You did that. Like whatever you're not doing, break it down. Yes, I love that. This is very empowering. Okay. Is it just the reality that some spouses will never change their mindset towards saving and debt? Well, yeah. I mean, some people just aren't really interested in change, right? So um, that is the case sometimes. And that's part of partnership is recognizing, are they are they asking to change? Are they willing to change or are they not? But what is happening probably is, um, again, I'm going to say, let's take those money words out. What are they, what are they being rigid about? And that we don't know. We got to find out. We got to ask them, what is coming up for you when you think about changing how we save, changing debt, um, what is coming up there? Cause it may be, um, maybe a lack of knowledge, you know, cause some people, you know, there is a place where there's a, a, you want to explain the power of compounding interest or the, what interest on your credit card is, you know, so, cause maybe they've been super avoidant of that. Um, so maybe it's a lack of knowledge, but most likely there's some shame there and they can look through, um, uh, one of the things in my um, money mindset shift course is I've created a, a decision-making matrix because I shift this into talking about a decision-making issue, not a money issue, because we really have to pull the power out of money. It's a block. So when we look at it as decision and I have like eight, seven, seven different sort of decision-making matrix starting points and moving from shame to compassion. So if you do that with your partner, if they're if they're open to change, if they're not open to change, go to the couples therapy and talk about that. Like what is, what is scary about change? It doesn't even have to be a financial therapist, but someone helping you recognize your relationship to change. If you are, then probably we haven't broken it down. Probably we're trying to like, um, 
flood the system with let's do everything differently or something like that. What do you think about that, Chelsea? Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. I think, you know, for me, my follow-up question would be like, are there situations that you see in your practice or in general where you're like, I think the two of you should probably separate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If there's financial abuse, um, it happens and it's very subtle because when there's sort of a, um, um, what if we call it a financially one up spouse, does that phrase resonate for you? Like one of them who thinks they're better than the other for whatever reason. Um, and that is not a truth. You're not better than your spouse if you have certain data points. But if you think you're better than your spouse or you think your spouse is better than you because their data points are different, then that's a therapeutic issue. If it, Does that make sense if I put it that way? Yes, and I think it's more common than we think around money, especially when, you know... I think it's it's interesting too because I think it's a dynamic that really calcifies over time because it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Like we had an interview like a, a, two seasons ago with um, a, a Dr. Romani who specializes in narcissism and narcissistic, uh, you know, people in your life, partners, etc. And one of the things that she was talking about that's a very common dynamic that she'll see in relationships is you have men who have highly narcissistic personalities who come into these relationships with women generally, um, who already earn more, who are often higher, more educated, perhaps come from, you know, more means. They want the woman to not work. They want her or to work less. They, uh, want her to be in a more, um, submissive role professionally. They want her to focus on, child rearing and domestic life. But then as a result of her not earning the same amount, not having the same qualifications, not having the same professional life, they use that as sort of a reason why they, that she should be doing everything at home, why she doesn't deserve as much respect, why he's not as interested in what she has to say. And, um, you know, it becomes a dynamic where, you know, the, the results of the abusive or, you know, narcissistic behavior, um, where the person more and more kind of subjugates themselves becomes evidence that they deserve to be in the more sort of passive role and that they don't deserve the same level of respect. And, you know, that's how so many women, and it's not always that exact dynamic, but I think it is more common than we think. And I think it's often what leads women to find themselves, you know, in midlife, having not worked for years and years, having very little understanding of, you know, the adult world, of how her own finances have gotten managed, how to manage finances. Um, and so I do, you know, it, I do wonder, hearing all the stories that we hear every day, just how common this is and how accepted it is, again, because of a lot of those gender roles that already normalize a dynamic where the woman does not have an equal level of footing. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And just, it's heartbreaking because that, that woman can't get out of that marriage or she'll believe she can't get out of that marriage because of the money. And, you know, you're also, you're, we're saying, um, so nicely there, the financial behavior is a symptom of a lack of respect or a narcissistic view of the partner, um, a feeling that a belief that the partner's there to serve the other partner and things like this. So looking at it as that, um, I think you even said recently in a podcast too, like, I really look at money, a partnership money as, um, 
what I recommend is a yours, mine, and ours with this sort of the whole Venn diagram overlapping and that each has that because, and the, and I say this to couples, I say, you know, this is how you live a life of a partnership, a, a health, you know, a partnership that has health and balance. You're not attached 24 seven. You go out and do your own thing and you come back and talk about it. And I think that your money can reflect that. Like if that's a, if, you know, you have that balance there and that's where it comes in to have everybody have their own money. And also for women who are listening to this, if you don't know the numbers, go find out the numbers. And if you don't know the numbers, go find them out. But sometimes I've worked with women in a very similar situation and we like, go get one at a time, just go this week, learn what the mortgage payment is. And then we just, and then I explain how mortgages work. Like if they're starting from like, they just don't know anything because knowledge does empower you. And it also helps you understand um, that you can do it on your own. Like, I mean, I've, I've started from zero a couple of different times. I mean, I've gone up and down, up and down, like you can do it. Um, it just, you know, it might be not as fun, might not be what you want it to be, but to really know, um, to know that. So yeah, if you're in a relationship, if it's early on, you know, if you've been in it 20 years, still try to know the numbers. And if there's a lot of block there, get some support, get some help with that. So you can figure it out, but it really helps. Um, that's why I love how you're, you're teaching people how to, how to know your numbers. You're, you're giving them little bite-sized bits of like, know this number, know this number. And that's how I approach it as well. Take it and what you, what you can handle, but know that, um, and then if you, you know, if you have a friend that you see is in a relation like relationship like that, be there to listen and support them and help them take those steps. I think that's very true. I think, you know, for me, something that's always with regards to having some separate finances and marriage, you know, something that's very important to me. I was actually talking about this at a dinner uh, with, with friends recently that it's very important for me that I always know that I could leave my marriage on a moment's notice if I needed to. Um not because I don't have a great marriage, I do, but because for me, it's very important that being in a relationship always be an active choice and that it's not something that I'm forced to be in out of financial necessity. And I do want to stress that that is a privilege that is not necessarily accessible to everyone, um, especially, you know, if you haven't been working for a long time or if you are, uh, you know, you have children and you're living paycheck to paycheck. There are many reasons why people can find themselves you know, more trapped, not trapped necessarily, but in a relationship financially that would be extremely difficult to extricate themselves from. However, I do think that a lot of people put themselves in that position unnecessarily. They could have a higher level of independence. Now, would it mean that your lifestyle takes a hit? Probably, um, almost inevitably, because life is cheaper as a duo. Um, you share a lot of costs. However, I do, it does worry me when I see people, man and woman, but especially women, who could have a much higher level of independence and choose to give that up and choose to um, abdicate that responsibility. Because to me, not only does it mean that being in your relationship is now an active choice and not a necessity, but also more importantly, I think that does add an unspoken amount of leverage to a relationship that both parties have, you know, the ability to make their own choices and that you know, if they're, if you're not acting right, <laughs> that there would be real consequences to it. And I, I am still kind of baffled to this day at how many women I see giving that power up when they could have it. Yeah. And I think you're making it such a great point to Chelsea, because, um, because also what, what you're saying, what you, 
what you're describing there also is that the other partner wants that for you too. It's important as the, uh, you know, as the other partner. And, and I think, you know, in this example, you're talking about the man, the man in the, in the relationship, but I see when I see two women in relationship, two men, you know, I see this, that, that partner wanting you to have financial stability is an act of love and an act of like very, you know, when, when people come up and they're like, Oh, who's going to pay the extra $20 on the mortgage, then we got a bigger problem than the extra $20 on the mortgage. We got like, what's going on underneath this? Where's the, you know, what, what's the affection and the, and sort of the disposition to relationships that, that $20 is feeling so um, fraught with conflict and not with judgment, but just to be able to go, that's a symptom, not the problem. So I think what you're describing, I absolutely agree. Like, I think it's important for women um, to, um, whatever may be in the system that leads them to want to abdicate financial information, financial uh, data, like knowing, having things in their name, things like that. I want them to explore that with compassionate curiosity and no judgment, because there's a story behind why you walk into a relationship and, and want someone else to take care of all that for you. But it's very trapping. And it also um, leads to relationship dissatisfaction. And I'm all about satisfaction in relationships. Like that's what we want to move toward is sufficiency, feeling uh, balanced and equal, no matter what the financial data point is. I agree. Um, so we have this question. Um, speaking of, you know, women sort of protecting themselves, this person is asking, what are some f- relationship red flags regarding money for women to be aware of getting into a relationship? I'm into him, but getting him to open up about money is tough. And this makes me worried. Yeah, I think it is. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it is a flag. I won't color it, but it's a flag. You want to be able to um, talk about money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with him. It just means, Hey, this is something we want to pay attention to when it might be easier to just like pretend, you know, go, well, it's just, it's normal. Like don't normalize it, but say, maybe you first want to talk about talking about money and say, okay, I notice when I want to bring up money, it seems like you changed the subject. And I'm just curious, like what, what's, you know, what that, and what do you want that to look like going forward? If you're in a place in your relationship where you're kind of torn, turning that corner to, uh, together foreverness, you know, kind of thing to say, what do you want this to look like going forward? How do we want to communicate about money so that you are putting words to the how and um, how you're going to talk about talking about it is a big, big thing like that. Um, yeah, because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know if, it, are they hiding something? Are they just, it's a new skill for them? Um, are they feeling um, that sort of narcissistic disrespect of you? Like, why dare you? You know, like you don't know that yet, but you want to, you do want to know. I think also like in the earliest stages of dating, you get a lot of good information from a dinner date, right? Like if the person is a terrible tipper, if they, Mm -hmm. you know, treat the staff with disrespect, if they're very insistent about, you know, uh, the, how you order and what you order and what, you know, what they pay for versus what you pay for. And, you know, I think there are all kinds of little red flags that can put themselves up in the context of just the first few dates. And I do think that, you know, part of, we talk a lot about how, yes, you know, two people from two really different income levels can date, but also be friends and they can be in all kinds of, you know, um, relationships together. 
But it does demand a really high level of emotional intelligence from the person who has more because they have to be, you know, aware and they have to compensate for it and they have to not unintentionally discount you or put pressure on you or make you feel insecure. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that a lot of those dynamics will play themselves out. If they're going to play themselves out, they'll play themselves out very early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. You're looking for clues to what does their relationship to themselves and others look like? And then asking yourself, if you're staying on that date with someone who's treating other people disrespectfully, what keeps you there? Because you can leave at any time. What keeps you there? And, and know that that's saying something about your relationship with yourself and others. And so looking at all those dynamics is really powerful and important. As a last, just kind of funny question on that note, do you have any opinions about paying on dates in terms of, uh, setting people up for success? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, let's see. Well, I would say, you know, a date is not a marriage, I guess we'd say like that. So think about how you would go out with some friends first, maybe, and how it would be. Um, because I think it's also helpful in a way to talk about how you're going to split a check, you know, like if the check comes and you're like, Um, And what is that energy there? And does it feel casual? And if you've never done that, I suggest you role play it with a friend because otherwise you'll, you'll get really nervous and you'll, your face will get all flushed and you'll stutter over your, Oh, let's, let's split the, you know, like you've never done that. So practice it. So you hear yourself saying, Hey, you know, this is what I'm going to do. So I think knowing how to communicate about it is way more important than who pays for what. So, but noticing like, does, you know, does the other person insist on paying? Do you, maybe you enjoy it. Maybe you're like, finally, I get a break from paying for something. You want to pay attention to that. Cause that's about your relationship with money. There's some anxiety there or something like that too. So there's a lot of things where I'm going to say up your awareness quotient, first of all, up your communication about it. Second of all, and, um, and kind of bring that to the table. Ooh, Bring that to the, that was a good metaphor for fun. <laughs> Bring that to the table, like have that be there. And um, so that it feels easy for you. And then you get to see, you get to reflect, like, what was that like for them? Like, are they, are they super insistent that they're going to pay for it? Or are they like, oh no, it's your turn or whatever. Like it's about the communication. It's not about the money. It's so, it's not, a, it's, it's just hardly ever about the money. Very true. Well, Wendy, it has been delightful chatting with you as I knew it would be. Um, where can people go to find more about your work as a therapist and as a financial coach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have loved this. Thank you very much. I hope that I can be your financial therapist on call for your audience because I think it's so powerful to talk about these things. Um, I am at financialtherapysolutions.com. So there's courses there, there's workbooks, there's um Sometimes there's session availability. I stay pretty full, but they're, um, so just kind of keep checking back. Um, but I've created the courses and the workbooks to give different price points for people to enter how to really understand and shift their money mindset. Cause that's a lot of it. And so you can take a lot of the things we talked about here today. You can take some of the journal prompts and things like that, that I offer to begin to shift your relationship with money. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all at home for tuning in. And we will see you next Monday on an all new episode of the Financial Confessions. Bye guys. 